Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know the show. This is where I sit down with amazing humans and I do everything I can to unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is the one and only Martha Beck. Now, if you're not familiar with Martha's work, you're in for a treat in this episode. And if you are, then this is going to be like, a, we're going to pull back the layers of the onion and get to her latest philosophy uh, and the title of her new book, The Way of Integrity. And if you don't know what integrity means, it's not about being good in the classic definition. In the Martha Beck world, integrity means feeling whole. So if you have ever felt less than whole, felt like a part of you was doing something for someone else where you weren't being true to yourself, where the prescribed path, whether that's from your your parents, your career counselors, your peer group, if that ever felt out of whack, if, if it was dissonance in what the world was saying and what you were feeling in your heart and your soul, this episode is for you. Now, uh, for those of you that don't know, I, I want to give you a little bit of background. Martha Beck is a best-selling author, life coach, and speaker. Oprah called her one of the smartest women she knows. She's written a number of best-selling books. I have uh, referred to her work often in my personal journey, and I know that you're going to get a ton of value. So I'm going to get out of the way. Be ready for a ride. We're talking. This woman goes to Harvard. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm. I'll let her tell it because her words are better than mine. But. What a journey she has been on, and this conversation is going to be a treat, I promise. So I'm going to get out of the way and leave you with Martha Beck. Goodbye 2020 and hello 2021. This is your year. This is the year where you take your dream, your one big dream, or the series of dreams that you have for this one precious life, and you put action behind those beliefs, those thoughts, the dreams that you have. And there's lots of ways to do that. I want to invite you to do one in particular this year, and that is to sign up for Creative Live. And you're like, wait a minute, isn't that the thing that you... Yep, that's right. I'm the founder and CEO of that thing. But I want you to know there's hundreds of people that go to work there uh, and make amazing content, whether that's the top creators and entrepreneurs or the team behind the scenes. There is a world where the best creators, the Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, they teach photo, video, art, design, music, audio, uh, business classes, anything that has to do with making a living and a life in any of those di disciplines. We have created from the ground up what I think is the best library on the planet, more than 10,000 hours. And this is where millions of people go to learn. And I wanted to invite you to make 2021 your best year yet and go to uh, creativelive.com slash creator pass, all one word, to get the very best price you can on a subscription that'll unlock literally thousands of hours, thousands of classes from all those folks you've, you've heard or seen on the show or that you know to be in my ecosystem. So many of those are the, the, the people who teach these classes at Creative Live. I want you to check it out. That's an amazing value, um, but the best price anytime, 24-7, is available at creativelive.com slash creatorpass, all one word. Martha, thank you so much for being on the show. I want to welcome you. Thanks a lot. Oh my gosh, Chase, it's such an honor to be here. I, I was, uh, I confess to the listeners and watchers out there uh, that right before we started recording, I was sharing with you that your books and teachings have been a fixture in my household for 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I could say decades, but certainly a long time. And so it's a treat to have you on the show. I think I was sharing a uh, Finding Your Way uh, book that I've got of yours with, you know, dog-eared pages. (laughs) And this has been lugged around Europe, uh, was in my my bag going back and forth between Seattle and San Francisco for a couple of years. it's Thank you so, so much. weird because I listen to your podcast and I look at your photos and everything and I think, I wrote that book about him, <laughs> but I had no idea you'd read it. <laughs> well, I am I know one of the things that I'm excited to have you on the show for today, among many others, is your new book, which comes out, uh, I think we're going to try and drop it the same week and our our posse of listeners are very good at helping authors move units. And so that's a a, a part of what we want to cover today in the new book is the way of integrity, finding the path to your true self. Uh, But I want to start at the start. I want to go way back because your spiritual journey, as I understand it, has been, it's, it's a long arc and, and uh, this work, you know, a lot of people are, not a lot of people are called to it. And yet you seem to be so such a natural in this space. And I'm wondering how you got here. What, what, what were some of the early um, indications that this was a path that was meant for you? Well, I was born into a very fundamentalist religious scene. So I was born to um, a very Mormon family in the Mormonist town in the Mormonist state <laughs> in the union. I'll let you guess what that is. Um, and, and raised, you know, before social media before, I mean, there wasn't, we didn't even have a TV. So I was just told all these odd religious things, you know, every righteous man gets his own planet. I was like, I don't know. Okay. I'm five. What do I know? (laughs) But it, it all sounded really odd. And, and, but it was so persistent that it gave me this kind of obsessive hunger to know what was true and what wasn't. And it sort of faded as I sort of, I got to be an adolescent and I started pursuing high achievement in secular culture. And then I went off to college and got really, really out of that, became very materialist, sort of atheist, Um, actually kind of agnostic. I didn't know what I believed, except I wanted everyone to like me. That's good. (laughs) It's better to look good than to feel good. And then I think the breaking point was when I was halfway through my third Harvard degree and um, I had a daughter. I'd gotten married, had a daughter, and then I had a second pregnancy. And it was very strange. Like from the beginning of the pregnancy, I started having sort of paranormal experiences, being able to see what was happening in distant places. And it was very weird. And then about six months into the pregnancy, I was, the baby was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And so I was facing this question of, do I want to terminate the the pregnancy? And I only have two weeks to decide. Um, And I'm very pro-choice politically, but my everything in my body, everything in my heart, everything in my intuition was saying, no, there's something, something's been happening throughout this whole experience and it hasn't been fun. All kinds of things went wrong. And this is devastating. And people are telling you, if you don't terminate the pregnancy, if you keep this baby, you'll be throwing away your life. And I looked around at the life that I had, and I'd been at Harvard since I was 17. I looked around at all the people who were doing so well and I thought, they don't seem very happy. And then um, I started to ask the question, can someone with Down syndrome be happy? And the answer was yes, unequivocally. So I started to think, what is the nature of the life I want to bring into the world? 
give it's not that I don't want to have a baby. What kind of baby is acceptable? And I realized that if it's just intellect and achievement, that's a very cold, hard world. And it was not making me happy. And so I sort of, I did, I threw my life away. Turned out that life sucked. And I went into a kind of exploration where I wouldn't believe anything. I was willing to go anywhere. Leprechauns, bring them on. I don't care. I'll keep, like, instead of not believing anything until it's proven true, I decided I can't really prove anything true. So I'm going to accept and open myself to anything until I'm pretty darn sure it's not true. And that just threw the whole world wide open to me. It's been a strange story ever since. Well, this openness, and that's, I mean, part of what originally attracted me to your work is this sort of these this allowance for things that we don't understand. And I think you talk about it in, in terms of magic, for example, and and that conceptually, and, and just right. being open and willing to um, go against convention. And again, from the the not saying I can know you personally, but knowing you through your work, this, um, there's, there is an undercurrent of what culture says Mm -hmm. and what is, and what is true for us. And there's a dissonance between those two things. And I think you have captured that in your work and you've with uh, that, that awareness with a capital A, but there's also an awareness for the people who watch and listen to the show that there's a a, a gap between where they are and where they want to be. They've yeah. been told by their, you know, their career counselors, their spouses, their parents, their grandparents. And, and what's hard for this is hard around this is these are people that care very deeply about you, that you're doing it the wrong way, that right. you can't, you can't be or become the thing you want to be in the world because of all of these reasons. Yeah. And that you have done such a masterful job of finding resonance where there is dissonance culturally. Mm, yeah. What what is at the root of your wisdom here? How how yeah. how have you been able to reconcile this in a world that is struggling to reconcile it? I think I just have a very low tolerance for suffering. Like I really believe that we're all born with an intuitive inherent nature that wants certain things. I mean, your life is such an example. What little I know of you, you were headed for med school, right? Like yes, <laughs> all, do the, the things. all of the things that were approved by everyone all else. All the approved things. And then according to the story I read, your grandfather left you a bunch of photography equipment. Yes. And then, I mean, what was, sorry to turn the tables, but no. what did that feel like for you? Well, it felt like um, the, the curiosity, The it felt like a hall pass. It felt like a permission slip to actually veer or step off the cultural norm for just long enough to get a whiff of something that was different than what was prescribed. And it was that whiff, the scent, it's sort of like when something's cooking in the kitchen Uh and you you want to learn more. And there was was a harmony in what I would say my heart, head, heart connection of when I started sort of pulling on this thread or walking toward the kitchen or the way I yeah. talk about it in my book is is is, is stepping onto the path. Is mm. things began to feel effortless, and I know from your book yeah. this is what it feels like to be in integrity. But yeah, I mean, exactly. but you you're so you turn the the tables on me, which is fair. But like you have been on a journey. Did you know this when you started? You know, when you left that path from Harvard, when you decided to have the child. Or was and, and did you magically arrive, or was this a series of of peeling back layers of an onion? Well, when I look back, it was it was happening from the beginning. I talk in this book about the difference between nature and culture. So you mm-hmm. put the two on, on the ends of a of 
a spectrum. And we're all born true to our nature. Every animal is. And we are the only animal, so far as I know, that can go, that can work against its own nature to the point where we will walk into cannons. We will live lives of private hell just to, to please other people. And that's culture. Culture meaning every, every, uh, Terence McKenna says, Whenever you have two people in a room, culture is the third guest at the table. It's the pressure to conform. Mm. And as social primates and the and primates with very high ability to imagine things, we've taken leaving our nature behind to a point that no other animal has ever taken so far as we know. Maybe there was a dinosaur back there, but they're done. <laughs> but um, what happens when we pull away from our nature is that our the, the I divide the meaning-making systems of the psyche of the self into four. And this goes along with many uh, wisdom traditions around the world, by the way. Um, spirit, heart, mind, body. And we usually, especially in our culture, we're very enslaved to mind. Mm -hmm. In Asia, there's a saying that the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And we have put mind at the very center of our entire cultural paradigm. And to follow what we mentally believe to be approved of, we will abandon our heart, our body, and our soul. In fact, completely deny the existence of a soul and ignore the body. As Sir Ken Robinson said, we see the body as a mechanism to take our heads to meetings. <laughs> and it's just, we can be so torn to ribbons. So when I look back, I'm, I think, by the time I was five, I remember thinking, I'm here to participate in a change in the way human beings think. And it wasn't something that anyone told me. I remember I was sitting in my bedroom and I just thought, oh yeah, that, I better get to work. <laughs> and, and it was just sort of there in the background, this assumption. And then um, when I started to leave my nature further and further behind to try to climb higher and higher in the social pyramid, and in my pyramid, it was intellectualism and academia, I got more and more unhappy. And when I was 18, I started developing mysterious uh, autoimmune illnesses that nearly killed me. I was in chronic pain for 12 years, had my kids in the middle of that, had this second child who was cognitively disabled. So now I've got a sick body, a different child, um, and a life that's still desperately trying to achieve the cultural norm. And I just finally, the suffering got so intense that I said, I can't can't do this. I'm going to let go of all the cultural rules. And I'm going to see what happens when I land somewhere else, which to me sounds a little bit like what you did there. There's kind of a breaking point where you go, all right, I'm just not going to hang on. And I, when I let go, I just fell. I didn't expect to land anywhere. But as you said, when we do that, there is something, and I, I don't, I don't believe in magic. I believe in science, but I believe there's a whole lot science doesn't know. Yeah. And when you let go of your cultural paradigms and you fall into your true nature, miraculous things start to happen. And that from my early twenties on was like, that was something I was obsessed with. Yeah. I, I probably should have said magical rather than magic, you know, this, oh, it's all and, the same. And, and, but that's this, this, this miracles when you start to look for them rather than expect them to, to you know, to the point you made earlier, um, expect that they don't exist and rely on the world to prove it to you. If, what if you, what if you flipped your script on that? Yeah. I remember, I think it was in, you know, your, the true North around or your North star around, um, 
this idea that the first thing, the first phase is meltdown. Yeah. yeah. And there, and, and I'm wondering if that I'm guessing that takes many forms. Um, but right now there's someone who's listening, someone who's watching, someone who's on a run somewhere yeah. or sitting on a park bench and they are feeling exactly what you're describing. They are feeling this, this dissonance between who they are and what culture thinks they are. There's, there's this, a break in the integrity between who they represent themselves publicly and what they feel privately. Let's just, I would ask for you to speak to that person right now. And what's, if, if you could just be with them for a moment, what would you tell them? The first thing I'd sit, do is sit down with them and I'd say, there is no such thing as time. Relax. There is no hurry. There is no hurry. If we're rushing, we're just rushing to the grave. So here we are. Let's not think forward from right now. But instead, let's look at the full span of what you're experiencing in this moment. What is your body feeling? I always start with the body because that's what is most disowned by the culture. And yet it's always talking to us. When I give speeches out of COVID time, I'll sometimes stop in the middle of a speech and say, is everyone comfortable? And they're like, yeah. And I'll be like, really, seriously, are you comfortable? And I'll be like, yes. And then I'll say, if you were at home alone right now, how many of you would be in the position that you're in at this moment? And no one raises a hand. And I say, why not? And it takes them like five minutes to realize they're not comfortable. So, and the discomfort is not the problem. The problem is that they have so tuned out their own biology that they can run it through a cultural filter that says, I have to be sitting upright in a straight back chair. So given that, this is tolerable. And they think they're comfortable. So the first thing I'd say to the person on the bench is relax and feel the discomfort wherever it is in the body. And as you tune into that, then you'll start to feel emotion. Now, most of us at this point run. Um, Blaise Pascal says the, the reason for all our misery is that we are unable to sit quietly alone in a room. Because when you sit quietly alone in a room and your mind starts to relax and the body comes online and then the emotions come online, you may learn that your life is not what it's meant to be. You may realize very starkly at that moment, oh my God, I'm in the wrong relationship or the wrong job or... Um, I really am going to die someday, that kind of thing. And that moment is what I call a catalytic event. Following that, as you said, there's a, there's a cycle of four stages that people go through. And I like to compare it to what a caterpillar does. So the caterpillar, they get to a state called full fed, where they're as big as they're ever going to get. And then I always like to think about what are they thinking the day they decide to metamorphose. Like they're just like, I've been eating my whole life, but now I'm going to make a small sleeping bag out of my saliva and go in there forever. Like, what are they thinking? So they go in there. We don't know what they're thinking, but people think they just go in there and like grow legs and wings. They don't. They dissolve into a liquid. So the first stage of a real change in anyone's life, and like COVID did this for all of us. It pushed us all. It was a catalytic event that hit every human on earth. And what happens then is not that you get yourself together and start flying. You fall apart completely. And our culture says that's a bad thing. And I would say to the person on the bench, lean into it. It's okay. You're not happy enough to want to be this way forever. And if you can let go and let yourself be nothing for a while, it will trigger the mechanisms that are meant to give you wings. And you don't even have to do it. 
just relax into this and let nature do its work. And you will come out of this a completely different being. And it's going to be wonderful. You you made a leap that I, that was my follow-up question was, aren't we in this time right now where you see so much um, racial injustice, economic strife, political uh, problems, and I don't think I'm alone in saying if you look around, if this is not sort of a reshuffling or a liquefying, to use the caterpillar uh, um, example, the next phase is also around dreaming, right? It's about what is it that you want to be or become? So keep talking to the person who's stopped and is listening right now. So once you've really fallen apart, and in Asia, they call this ego death, the monk goes into the cave and lets his mind go away. And becomes, they say, you're, the face you had before your mother and father were born. You become complete nothingness. And then in the case of a caterpillar, this triggers the activation of uh, imago cells. And these cells have the instructions to take the liquid that is in the cocoon and reassemble it into a butterfly. And in our own personal lives, the way we experience that is that we're just sort of plastered uh, by the way, the way you fall apart is the grieving process. It's not fun, but the only way out is through. And you go through this cycle of resistance, denial, bargaining, um, grief, anger, acceptance. And once that's complete, one day you wake up and you think, I have a new idea. And I don't know, you've, you've recreated yourself so many times. Like this podcast is not what I would, the med school thing to the photography thing, that's like odd. Then there's, okay, now he's a world famous photographer. He's going to start a podcast. Like talk about reinvention. Where did those, everyone feels those flickers of the new life coming in the same way, but most people are trained not to pay attention. What does it feel like to you? Like when the flicker of the new mm. thing comes, what does it feel like? Mm. I want to answer this very truthfully. Let me think for a second. What does it actually feel like? It feels at first like um, a little light in the darkness, and then it feels scary. Mm-hmm. And then it feels um, intellectual for a second. The scary part is the mind takes over and tells me all the reasons that it's hard and difficult and mm-hmm, why people mm-hmm. before me haven't done it. And then it, I go back to the muscle that I feel like I was lucky enough to develop, which is a muscle around trusting <sighs> my, my ability to land on my feet, to figure it out, to not know all of the steps, but just to know the first two and to take those. That is so cool. I've never heard it referred to as a muscle. I immediately identify with what you're saying. And just in in regard to the latest book I wrote, what you're talking about is your integrity, which doesn't mean like Sunday school stuff. It means to be one thing whole. And that's why airplanes can fly because they're in structural integrity. It's not because they're good and we should pat them on the head. It's just integrity is what works. And what you're feeling there, that muscle, we've been trained away from it. And for the reason being that if we start to trust that muscle in us that says, I know what I am becoming, and I will become not just one butterfly, but different iterations of myself. And I will go against my culture, my family culture, my friendship culture, my work culture, whatever it is, my national or ethnic culture. And um, 
I can do this. That is the most dangerous thing you can say to any social system. And I believe that's, for example, that's why you got the Black Lives Matter thing rising up during COVID, because everyone had to sit quietly alone in a room for a while, and the truth started to rise. And there was a certain group of people that said, we have been oppressed for centuries, and it's it is no longer acceptable. That's got to go. And there's no precedent for justice being established in that area. But there is that feeling, you know, Dr. King's dream. Where did that come from, that dream? It had to come from something internal and possibly numinous or like otherworldly. It had to come from truth with a capital T. And so you're landing in that personally huge groups are, of us are finding that muscle collectively. And it is faith, exactly as you said, it is faith and trust in that that allows us to leave cultural forms that aren't working, not for us, not for anyone, and go into something beautiful. But in this scheming and dreaming stage, stage it all happens inside. So both the first stage, I call it square one, the square of death and rebirth. And then the second, which is the square of scheming and dreaming, they happen inside your own head, heart, soul. And then after you've thought for a while, you can take it out on the road. So tell me more about your process. Like you have a brilliant idea and then you didn't just get catapulted to world fame and success. How did you get through square three, which is the square where you actually get, go from the ideal world to the real world? Well, first of all, this is so fun to be in conversation with you about this because I've read your work and watched you dissect so many other people. Now to be on the receiving <laughs> end of this dissection when we're talking about your book about integrity. Um, uh, let's see. I find that that dreaming and scheming phase is a, there's a truth, like a, a, a beacon of truth that if I have pretended that it's something besides that beacon of truth i've struggled to go into the real world but uh -huh. when i have when i have trusted that beacon of truth and it's something that i love that i feel passionate about i feel connected to i yeah, feel yeah, yeah. i feel like bubbles up inside me yeah that makes the work i can't say effortless because i put a ton of effort into it sure but it, it feels like i'm doing the right thing, which again, I know from, this is integrity. This is the oneness I think yeah. that yeah, you're yeah. talking about. And that action starts to feel like it's in sync with who I am rather than um, the times where I have, you know, had performative roles in my life or, you know, right. done things against my will or, the, you know, pretending that I wanted to go to medical school when it was just right. a thing that was socially acceptable. So is that, is what, is what I'm describing there? Do you feel like that's a, a, an analog for integrity, for, for oneness? Oh, is that why it's easy? It's not even an analog. It is the thing itself. You're talking about living in integrity. And when I love that you used language that was both emotional and physical. You talked about bubbling. You talked about passion. Bubbling is a physical thing we mm -hmm. can observe. And so many of your pictures have bubbles. I love that. <laughs> and passion is something you feel in the heart. And then you said some more things that made me think that's really, he's going on soul. He's, he's imagining what's never been. And then you bring your intellect to it. All four of those systems are aligned and you're so into the, the wholeness of yourself that you are then able to be your nature despite your culture, which not only improves your life, but improves the culture itself. 
like this whole book now is based around Dante's Divine Comedy because that's an obvious self-help thing. Um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, I, I know, no, it's a, but it's. It, but this is your brilliance, Martha. It's like, like layering those two things together is just that's to me pure genius. Well, but I'm, sorry, keep going. I, you know, I'm like 18. I'm like, help me learn to be happy. I'm reading anything I can. The Divine Comedy. It never occurred to me to read it academically. I read it as self-help, and it worked. So why not? Um, but he went through an experience like that where he fell apart and he struggled and he came back and, and he writes about it metaphorically in the divine comedy. And as he comes into complete integrity with himself, it's exactly what you described. There's a period of intense effort, but driven. He says, if I didn't, I had so much passion. I had so much desire to go up toward paradise that I, I developed, I grew wings and he's not sure how it happens, but somehow he gets to be this other, this other being who's dropped all of his cultural associations. And at that point, he starts drifting upward into paradise and all kinds of magical things start happening. I thought that was just metaphorical. Let me tell you something. It actually happens. And, and Chase, your life is kind of, it's one of those wonderful things I can point to and say, look, it works. <laughs> look at him. He's doing it. Well, this, I want to paint a picture that's real. Like there were, that to say it works, I didn't feel like it was working at all kinds of different stages along the way. And, and I say that to make, to, to sort of help people feel included in this process. Absolutely. That, that this is that it sometimes it feels difficult it feels hard and yeah when, when i refer to it as a muscle because once you've gone through that once or twice yeah you start to recognize this as a pattern and when you realize it's a pattern you can look back at and connect some of the dots and saying great how did it play out when i doubled down on the thing yeah. that I truly felt was in my heart oh it worked and how did it feel when you 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 sort of lean back or shied away from the thing. Oh, it was right. a total disaster. And these are, this is true with relationships. This is true yeah. with career path. This was true for me in, in friendships. Physical um, health, yeah, finance, oh, everything. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I want to talk about integrity because right now there are people who like there's an, in the book, you talk about an unlearning. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I feel like that was the hardest. And to be fair, I am white. I am male. I am born in America. I have basically every privilege. I mean, I was lower middle class, but I've basically ticked all of the privilege boxes and unlearning lessons from culture was yeah. what I would say was the hardest thing for me to do. So, you know, not what if you were not in all, if you didn't win the, um, the privilege lottery, like I did, how much harder would it be to unlearn these things? And just, just put this unlearning in context. For yeah. Me. It's harder and it's easier when you're um, less privileged. So what happens, and, and I just want to go back to Dante for a minute. What we have to do is he finds himself completely adrift in a place he doesn't recognize where he's very terrified and things are not good. And then he has to go through hell literally hell, the inferno. And then he gets to climb up and have all those fabulous experiences in paradise. And every time we want to break with an, an aspect of our culture and become a new aspect of ourselves, it's that same feeling. Uh, I'm lost. This isn't working. Oh boy, here we go through hell. But I remember going through it before. And then you have to climb this mountain called purgatory, which is literally cleansing away anything that's not integrity. Then you'll be fine. Now you 
are so unusual because you were born into what I call the man cage. Um, and it's, I, I use that because Max Weber, the first great sociologist in the 19th century, talked about how people who were in this privileged material wealth driven culture were simply going to be pushed further and further toward being machines that make money until their souls were dead. And he called it the iron cage of rationalism. And when I look at what's going on in our national culture, our global culture, people who are born relatively privileged are really inside that cage. There's no reason to leave it. The whole cage, it's, it works for you or it looks like it works for you because it gives you power, wealth, and status, which are the things we think will make us happy. And this is something Dante talks about too, how we can try and try and it won't make us happy. Now, if you're a female, if you're a person of color, if you're trans or whatever, the system is going to make you suffer more sooner. And what that means is that you start questioning sooner and you start rattling the bars of the cage and saying, I want out sooner. And you start realizing this is not fair. This is not right. I, you know, I will give my life to say something better has to happen. And so it's easier in some ways to become independent of the machine if you're less privileged. If you're more privileged, the very trappings of privilege lock around you like an iron cage. And the men that I've coached, so many of them, Chase, have just sat, when I used to see people one by one, they just sit there and try not to cry for a whole hour because they didn't see a way out. They didn't understand why they weren't happy. They saw no way out and their lives looked perfect. And that in some ways is the worst trap you can land in. You do such a good job of using your own life and you, you know, talking about your personal quest for integrity as the mechanism for illustrating what the process, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking right. about a process, right? It's, yeah. if, whether it's the Dante's journey or the hero's journey, or like we're talking about a process. Right. And I'm wondering if you, you, you've helped unpack me. I'm wondering <laughs> if you can you know, use some examples from your own life of going through this. You did a little bit earlier with, um, you know, the rec reconciliation, the recognition of your time at Harvard and deciding to have a child. And, but if you, you know, maybe back out a little bit, expand right. our aperture, talk us through some of the, how, how this has worked for you. Maybe some t examples of how it worked and maybe some where it didn't, because it sounds like, I want to just make sure that people in the world know that all this stuff isn't, isn't just like a little script that you can just read and follow. No. And it goes time. So share a couple examples from your own life again with, with the goal of helping as many people relate as possible. I, I kind of believe in destiny. I don't think we're born with an absolute destiny, but I do believe in general life mission. And I seem to have been born with a dis, uh, a destiny of being culturally unacceptable. <laughs> so I grew up a very intellectual girl in Mormonism, went to Harvard, had a baby with an intellectual um, disability. Then I was so traumatized by the fact that everyone thought I'd made the wrong decision that I moved back to my hometown of Provo, Utah, the most Mormon place on earth, because I knew they'd, they wouldn't question my decision with the, the pregnancy. And I tried to fit in with the locals there and I tried to be good to the people that I'd known in childhood only to discover that I really truly did not believe in Mormonism. 
Well, this meant that um, I was now the most, I was in Mormon culture, leaving the religion is the single worst sin you can commit. It's worse than murder. And not only that, but as I was struggling with that, I started having flashbacks, um, really violent, intrusive flashbacks of being sexually abused as a child by my father, who was a big cheese in the church. And I realized as a sociologist that that the abuse of girls and women is is pretty rampant among people who are in these old Mormon families that had polygamous backgrounds and everything. It just is an odd psychological legacy. So um, then I left, I left my, when I was 29, I decided I was not going to tell a single lie for an entire year. I took this as a New Year's resolution because I, I couldn't figure out how to get my feet on the ground with all these different cultural pressures. And I just, I knew I needed something solid to stand on. So I decided not to tell a single lie the whole year I was 29. I kept that resolution. And during that year, I lost um, my family of origin, well, first my religion, then my family of origin, all my friends that I'd had before the age of 17 or 18, um, my industry, my job, my career, as it was going at the time, my marriage, my home, my basically everything. And began to feel truly whole for the first time in my life. Like it had to just shred. And then I was like, okay, I get it. Um, when I feel bound to culture and it's not working, I will throw myself into the fire. I will, I will trust this process. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And then I realized I was gay. So here's what I like to say. I went to Harvard to have a baby with a cognitive disability. Then I went to Utah to become a lesbian and people ask me for advice. <laughs> they pay me for it. <laughs> it's just but, weird. But that's, I think that's fascinating because that is the, that if that is what finding like peace, if you have to do that, like then, and when we know the other stuff deep, deep, deep down, the other stuff is, does not work. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me for a second that we turn to you to help us. I just say burn every bridge, but love, which is the same as truth. Just burn everything that isn't really you and your life will be incredible, but you will potentially lose everything you presently value. It, I like to say it'll, it'll give you everything you wanted. It will give you everything that will make you happy, everything that will make you wealthy, everything that will bring you love, everything that will make your ideal world, and it will cost you absolutely everything else. Those are the stakes. In your book, there are some questions that we can ask ourselves, and I'm wondering if you can share some of those questions, because that person who's listening right now, they are hooked. They stopped whatever they were doing. Now they're sitting on the couch, maybe, uh, you know, staring at the at the wall, or they're still on that bench, or they're walking a little slower because we've struck a chord. And now let's let's help them connect with this integrity. What are some questions that they can ask themselves in this moment that we've got their attention? It's so, so simple. And I'd really like you to use a little um, of a therapeutic school called internal family systems, where you divide yourself into parts. So wherever you are, take the part of you that's like listening to this podcast and everything, then take out any part of you that feels 
um, something moving inside you when you hear this, something, it may be an ache, it may be a joy, it may be a sting, it's, but it's a sensation. And take that part of yourself and move it like to a different chair in the room or another seat on the bus or whatever. And then look at this part of yourself, look at it from the perspective of a self that is outside of time and outside of suffering. It is just pure awareness and compassion. And ask this self of yours, the suffering self, what are you feeling? What hurts? What doesn't hurt? What do you know that you're afraid to know? What do you, what are you afraid other people will know about you? If you were to follow your heart's desires, what are you afraid would happen? And as you start to, I don't even know if these are the questions you're talking about, Chase. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, am I feeling what I really feel? Am, you know, yeah. am I letting myself know the things oh, yeah. that I know to be true? Ultimately, yeah, I, I really believe that a life of integrity, and it sounds so selfish to us in this culture, is know what you really know, feel what you really feel, do what you really want, and say what you really mean. And people say, well, if I did that, I'd just rob banks all day. And I'm like, ah, not if you stopped. At, not if you really knew what you're feeling and what you're um, knowing at a deep, deep level. I've worked with, I test these things on like conv convicted murderers and, you know, psychopaths, and they all have the same thing. If they really ask what's going on inside, they end up in a place that, at least the people I've talked to, where they, there's the desire to do harm is much less than the desire to realize one's own truth, which is always benevolent, always. You mentioned working with uh, socio and psychopaths and at the other end of the spectrum, I don't know if this is the right spectrum to draw, but you've, you've coached so many of the world's top performers and you, you, you were a regular in Oprah's sphere. And I'm wondering at this, at the, at, at our base level, are, are the problems the same? They just manifest differently. And what, what have you learned from a life, you know, that spans work with such a diverse population. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the more you gain the the credentials and the awards and the approbation of society, the the harder and faster your life is moving forward. So it's like um, somebody who's sitting on a bench now who just graduated from college and doesn't know what to really do is might be sort of tootling along going 40 miles an hour on a road somewhere with his life where you, having done everything you've done, are now riding, driving an 18-wheeler at 80 miles an hour down a freeway. Like your life has a lot of power to it. What that means is that if you go astray, if you leave your integrity, it won't just be like, oh, I crossed the median, I'm going to pull back on the road. It will be like, you'll take out a building. So no matter how much we gain in terms of um, success in the culture, all we get is more intense versions of the same stressors that bothered us when we were powerless, right? It just, it goes with us unless we choose to walk away from cultural pressures into our integrity. Other than that, you just get harder and faster punishment when you go wrong. <laughs> harder and faster punishment. Yay, that's the title of my next book. <laughs> Bestseller in the making. Uh I want to go back to the root, this concept of integrity and what are some simple things that one knows 
or one can know when it's working because is it is it mind is it body is it you start with the body but i wanted we never really got to complete that thought what does it feel like because again that same person and i've been this person this is i'm i'm, I'm saying that person a little bit to relieve the burden of owning this myself but the person who's on the park bench who stopped their run to listen to this conversation um we, we talked about the feelings that it feels when you're in integrity, but what are some of the other signs and signals? Oh, the interesting thing. I, I talk in the book about a friend I had who was a, a hardcore junkie on the streets of New York for 20 years, then got clean and sober for 20 years, and then and died shortly after I met her, actually, a couple of years. And um, what she would always say is, she said, I've run a, a thousand hustles in my life, and I realized pretty much everyone is always running a hustle. I did it for heroin. Other people are doing it for praise or for money or for love. And she said, they're all, all the hustles are the same. They're all flimsy because they don't have truth in them. Once you start telling the absolute truth about your life, you come into harmony with reality. And so you don't have to build your life anymore. You are resting it on a solid foundation. And she used to say at the end of the day, only the truth has legs nothing else is left standing. And after she died, I got a tattoo on my right ankle that says only the truth has legs. And no matter what you're trying, it will start to create suffering and unease. You'll get uneasy and then you'll get disturbed and then you'll get distressed. And then you might have a crisis because part of you that is born to find integrity will never stop saying, come this way, come over here, come over here. And the further you get away from it, the more you suffer. So once you start to get into a harmony of what you what you feel in your body, what you feel in your mind, what you feel in your soul, and what you know, sorry, I said feel in your mind. So body, heart, soul, mind. Once those all come together, the internal experience is of a puzzle piece clicking into place, like perfectly, like, ah. Oh. Emotionally, it feels like peace. And it's so interesting. I've, doesn't matter who you talk to, murderer, beggar, billionaire. The one thing that I've found that makes everyone feel that most strongly is the statement, I am meant to live in peace. When people say that, everything goes click. And that's like the lesson. And once you're in peace, well, two things happen. I talk about this uh, integrity as a path to what Asians would call enlightenment. I was a Chinese major as an undergraduate, spent some time in Asia. And uh, they talk about this awakening process. Now, Western scientists have looked at Asian meditators and found that this enlightenment is a real measurable thing. And they say it's not only measurable in the brain, but we are biologically predisposed to seek it. And what it does is it turns off our sense of being separate from the world. So our sense of self disappears into being everything. And the other thing it turns off is our, our sense of control. So if you ask people what they want to lose least, they would say, my sense of self and my sense of control. But when those two things go quiet and you surrender to peace, you go into a state of bliss in which things happen to you with improbable levels of joy and success. And that's what I mean by the magic. And again, I'm so glad to be talking to someone who's done it because I can just point to you and say, ha, 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 it really happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have... Uh, I've. We've got a, my wife and I have a dear friend who has completed your coaching um, and wayfinders. 
And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the, the approach, not just the teachings, but the approach to teachings. Cause I think it, it provides an, it, it might be a lens through which we get some really interesting concept context. So just, you know, there's a, a post that I was drawn to on your Instagram, which is wayfinders have many labels, medicine, people, shamans, mystics, healers. But today, most wayfinders live among people who have no name for them. So paint a picture for us of wayfinders that live among us, but have no name. Yeah. Um, as a sociologist, I went looking as part of some of my research forever ago, I went looking at all the pre-modern tribes and specifically what formed culture originally. And culture always forms around someone who has a kind of, it was called charisma and that was not used in English until anthropologists and sociologists started using it to define people who have this connection to something inner and other that we've been talking about this whole time. And in every group around the world, there are these people and they have a cluster of characteristics. Typically they are, um, there are all kinds of things that we separate. So artists, that would be, you're on for that. Um, psychologists, mystics, uh, animal behaviorists, botanists, medicine, you know, healers, psychologists. They have this cluster of characteristics. And in every group, there will be elders who have this and who will be called whatever the that particular people calls them. There's no one word. I chose wayfinders because it was a, a very unusual English word that sort of sort of put them in a in a pile. But in prehistory, every group of people had about 50 to 135 people in it. That meant that they always had some medicine people growing up. They also had some elders and they had some babies. So there was a fairly high recurrence of this cluster of characteristics in every known culture. And I thought they've got to still be happening. And I started looking for them. And it was related to that feeling I had when I was a young child, that there's something we've got to fix about the way people perceive the universe and the way they function in the world, the way we think. There has to be a shift in consciousness if we're going to keep living in harmony with the earth and each other. And so I, I ended up writing this book and I call it The Wayfinders. And my premise is that you're born that way, to quote Lady Gaga. Um, I went to, I lived on the shore of California for a while and I looked at uh, history to see what the original people there did you know, to pass the time for 6,000 years before the Europeans got there. And it said they lived by storytelling, by picture making, by weaving, fishing, hunting, gardening. And I thought they lived for 6,000 years doing things that we do on vacation. You know, we go to spas to do that stuff. But that's what we're naturally meant to do. And some of us are natural medicine people. But it doesn't mean doctors, it may, although a lot of doctors do fit this. It just means you're a wayfinder. And so I kind of look for those people and there's a sense of recognition that goes with it. And they're always doing something really interesting and nothing like anyone else. And you seem to have been able to grab that with both hands early in your life. And I just hope that people out there listening are thinking, huh, that sounds really cool. And one more thing, you talked a bit about unlearning before. Um, in the Tao Te Ching, my favorite 
Book of Chinese Wisdom, it says, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the pursuit of the way or of enlightenment, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you have to force things until you arrive at non-doing. When nothing is done, nothing remains undone. That's the wisdom of China coming through its wayfinders. And all the wayfinders say the same thing in different languages. You let go of culture. You let go of what you're so attached to. And what lives through that fire is pure magic. I love that you're, you you continue to bring the Eastern in there. My wife is a meditation and mindfulness teacher is trained under Ram Das and Jack Kornfield oh, cool. and Tara Brock. And that's one of the reasons your books have been such a fixture in our, in our home. Um, this, this is such a foreign context for a Westerner, like the idea yeah. of like, you know, trusting, uh, trusting the universe that everything is great. If you just like, there's no, we're in a constant tug of war. Maybe this is a better one. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like what you're advocating is dropping the rope. And that to me, there's that same person. If, if you, if you go back to the 22 year old me, right. Terrified to drop the rope. I, I believed that my ability to pull hard on that rope was what had provided, you know, the, the, the things that were special to me. And, you know, achievement and the, the things that, that, you know, you're articulating very clearly that this is not where the goods are at, but it violates such a deep, deep, deep. And I'm, I'm maybe creating a false distinction between East and West, but just help, help me reconcile this or help someone right now. Rec like, wait a minute, I've, I'm, I got here because I pulled so hard on this rope and, yeah. you're, telling, and you're telling me to set the rope down and there's no more tug of war that just reconcile that for us. As long as it's pulling you into joy, into peace, I've got no argument with you whatsoever. It's interesting, right at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, Dante's lost in these woods and he sees a mountain that's bathed in sunlight. It's really beautiful and people are climbing it. And he thinks that's the way out of my confusion. And he starts climbing and he's so tired, but he fights his way forward. And then he starts running into wolves and bears and leopards and things, and nothing works. He's feeling miserable. He's climbing as hard as he can, but things keep coming at him. And they're always metaphor for emotion states in, in the Divine Comedy itself. So if you're climbing and pulling on that rope and you're feeling joy and lightness and beauty, then keep, keep it up. Great. But if you're suffering, and the higher you get on that mountain, the more you suffer and the harder you pull, the more you suffer. I've worked with people who are at the very top of the pyramid socially. I mean, like really close to the very top. And like one person, perfect life, famous, wealthy, gorgeous, everything was taking 200 Oxycontin a day because the pain was so intense. Like that's how bad it is. So Dante goes, all right, well, that's not it. And then he goes back down into the forest and ends up going, finding the gate of hell. And it says, abandon all hope ye who enter here, which doesn't sound all that fun. But what it means is the caterpillar never makes it out alive. If you go the way of transformation, it's all going to burn. But you'll not only survive it, you'll come out of it with magic. You'll come out of it with brilliant new colors and wings and things you can do that the caterpillar never even imagined possible. So if you're not enjoying the pull towards success, try letting it go. See what happens.
I want to talk to you forever. I want to just <laughs> handcuff you to the microphone there. Um, I'm in. <laughs> I'm. Let's see. I, I want to. Tr- we got a couple planes in the air here, and I want to land them. And we, I want to go back to the the title of the book again: "The Way of Integrity," because even you know fi- the subtitle is "Finding the Path to Your True Self." And I think there are a lot of people listening right now. They're like, okay, I'm in. But the the question I have is the way of integrity, even the word the way, it's prescriptive, right? Because it's like, this is the, and, and I want, I want, I'm challenging you. I want you to, to, to throw rocks at my, my question here or, you know, explain. I love and, it. And I, and my my belief is that that the way is sort of in air quotes but talk to me about why you titled the book the way of integrity versus something else um i'll be full disclosure i just wanted to call it integrity because integrity doesn't mean honesty it means being one thing whole and undivided yeah. i also wanted to call it undivided but they didn't like that either so we compromised on the way of integrity a lot of people think it is a prescription a way is a prescription for doing things and here it is and it's right and you have to do it to be happy. That's not how I mean this. Um, Way, and I say in the book, it can mean either a path, like this is the way, or it can mean a method, a recipe. Here's the recipe for happiness. It also, you know, I mentioned the Tao Te Ching. Tao is Chinese for way. And so that's my favorite book in the world and I am obsessed with it. So it chimed that for me too. If you think this is prescriptive, you'll find that's not what I'm talking about. It, by way, I mean a path that is meant for your feet only. It's not anyone else's trip to wholeness because no one else is you. And there's a method. So if you're stuck, it will tell you the next step to move forward or the next thing to do to make what you want of your life. And so it's the opposite of actually, the danger is always that you're going to come across as a pulpit pounder saying, I know the way. But the content is that you abandon all other ways and you find the way that is only yours. And then you're undivided and good Lord, you're going to do things no one's ever seen before. I have to say thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Time just absolutely blew by. I, I wanted to be cognizant of, I, I know you're in the process of launching your book. I want to say again, congratulations. I cannot recommend the book enough just to give it a little plug here. So you don't have to. The Way of Integrity, Finding the Path to Your True Self. Um, it's out now. We're dropping this podcast the week that it drops. And um, are there some other coordinates out in the world, you know, besides the book again, which is a must read, if this has resonated at all, of course, what people are going to do is they're going to grab the book and then they're going to realize that they've got, they want to pull on all of the threads that you have put in. The world. <laughs> but give us some other, give us some other threads to pull on uh, where else besides, you know, getting the book, how, how can people participate in your work? What would you recommend? Well, yeah, my whole, my, my obsession is to create that shift in consciousness that takes us from suffering into joy and I think potentially could help us build a better world. So everything I've done is basically about that. If I do like if a marketing team has me do an ad, I, it, the ad has to try to move 
consciousness forward a little because I'm obsessed with it. So I'm not saying I'm a master of any kind. I'm, I'm a humble student, but my website and everything connected to that, it'll list my, the influences that have changed me the most, which are so many, I can't even list them here. Um, and I hope it will bounce you off into places like this podcast where you can see that the wayfinders are everywhere. And that even though no two of us are going to the same place, we're all following the same process. And yeah, whatever, just Google it. <laughs> just Google find it. your own path. I don't care what you do with mine. But uh, well, you know, it's, it's not a mistake that Oprah called you one of the smartest women she's ever met. And uh, I've been so inspired by your work. Uh, it's touched so many in my life. And uh, I wanted to say personally, thank you. And congratulations on the book. Uh, and our, our community here are uh, supporters and advocates, and uh, we'll do everything we can to get the word out. So thanks so much for being on the show. Really grateful. Thank you for your life, your work, um, your ideas. I just, I'm a huge fan. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. All right. Now signing off, everybody, you've got work to do. If you're anything like me, uh, I want to completely uh, devour everything that we've just spent the last hour talking about. Um, until next time, I bid you adieu. Well, that was an awesome show. But hey, before you go, I want you to know that I am grateful to have your ears, your attention, to have you be a part of this community. It means the world to me. Second, if you want to uh, tighten our community, our relationship, I would invite you to text me. That's right. I respond. These are my thumbs, my phone number on the other side of this. And I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Um, if this is helping, hurting, what you want to see more of, less of, and otherwise just connect with yours truly personally at the following number. Are you ready? 206-309-5177. That's 206-309-5177. And those are my thumbs on the other end of that text and back. I'm able to get back to you sometimes in two minutes. Maybe other times it takes me two days, but I can't wait to hear from you and uh, start a little chit chat. So again, thanks for listening to the show. Stay tuned for another episode 